Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Right, right on, right on. I remember doing that myself. I was just sitting there thinking about that. Little did you know, it was me that set the six-year record. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. My name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, actually. Um, and uh, it, is a, uh, it is a privilege, really is a privilege, to get the opportunity to uh, say things about God in front of other people and to open, uh, to open his word. We are in the third week of our series in Luke, Tables and Sinners. We're, uh, we're looking through Luke's biographical account of Jesus' life and his ministry, We're seeing how he came to seek and to save that which was lost. I want to show you something, okay? It's going to be put on the screen. I don't want people shouting out what you think that it is, okay? So just, I'll give you a second. I'll give you a second. Go ahead and show it. What do you see in this picture? It's one of those classic pictures where there's a few things. Okay, now you can shout out. What do you see? A duck? I'm hearing, I'm hearing mostly duck, but I've also heard rabbit, right? Do you guys see? Do you see both of them? This is one of those classic things that sometimes pictures like this can show us, can show us that people can look at the same things and sometimes see different realities, right? You can stare at the same thing sometimes and not see the exact same picture. We can miss Sometimes what else might possibly be there? Wonderful, Sean. You know, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus or or anything? Actually, quite a lot. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at what Luke records as Jesus' inauguration address. Inauguration addresses have a long history dating back to at least the Roman Empire. We are uh, all familiar with presidential inaugural addresses, right? Where incoming president announces their agenda and sets a vision for their presidency. Historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. from the 1950s had this to say about uh, presidential inaugural addresses. The platitude quotient tends to be high, the rhetoric stately and self-serving, the ritual obsessive, and the surprises few. What he means by that is that we pretty much all know what's coming with presidential inaugural addresses. Uh, you know, you're going to get some uh, connection to our history. It's going to be some God bless America's in there. Uh, we're going to, you know, American ideals, freedom, things that line up with what the president campaigned on, right? Those are things that are going to be resonant in, in what they have to say. Those are going to foreshadow the actions that they're going to take. I, I read a number of these this week, which I don't know that I recommend, but I did. <laughs> and uh, no surprises, you know, Ob- Ob- President Obama's sounded like President Obama. President Trump sounded like President Trump's. Clinton, Clinton, Reagan, Reagan, Mr. Schlesinger was right. However, as we'll see, Jesus' inaugural address didn't quite line up with how people saw things. Uh, There were definitely some surprises to to, to his listeners. So much so that the crowd wanted to kill him right then and there. I'm kind of hoping that doesn't happen this morning. (laughs) 
If we're to understand why he got the reaction that he got, that we're, we're going to read about, why people missed him, it's helpful to understand the world that Jesus was in and what their expectations were. What had happened to form those expectations in their imaginations? You see, the Jewish people, they were absolutely no strangers to the rise and the fall of various kingdoms in, in, in the earth, right? They had seen their own kingdom come and go. They saw many others rise and overtake them. They had experienced exile. They returned to their land. About 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great conquered Judea and introduced Greek culture. Right, Nick? Hellenization for the win. When he he died, when when Alexander the Great died at a young age, uh, his generals took over different corners of his kingdom. The general who took over Judea was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, this guy, he wanted to absolutely root out Jewish covenantal culture. He wanted, it to, he wanted Judea to be straight up Hellenized, fully Greek. He went to some pretty extreme measures to, to do that, so much so that he rallied a resistance against him. Like his actions were so egregious that there was a resistance that, that rose up uh, that rose up against him, led by a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Uh, his nickname was The Hammer. Yeah, right? The Hammer. He rose, up, <clears throat> he rose up, led this resistance, and for the first time in generations and generations and generations, Israel was self-governed. There was a kingdom that had been reestablished in Israel, in Judea, that was self-ruled. Self, self, self that lasted for about 100 years. That was 100 years of the kingdom. Wow, God, we have our, we have our, our, our country back. Our, 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 the kingdom is here. We're, we're self-rule. And then Rome rolls in like 20 hammers. The world had never seen anything, like, uh, anything quite like Rome. And they, they, took, they took over. And that was left... Uh, that, was, that, that essentially happened about 60 years before, before the time of Christ. So people's imaginations, when Jesus shows up, there's people who were around or alive that remembered what it was like to live under their own kingdom. That, that, that history shapes the imagination of the people, the people of God. So Rome comes in, takes over, and what are they, good Jews, left to do? But to wonder, why, God, did you let this happen? Why are we here again? We just had the kingdom. Why has it been taken away from us? We didn't have a prophet to tell us, like in years past. And, and what you see happen in the culture is the Jewish people trying to work out the reasons for why. And they broke into four different factions, basically. I'm sure it's an oversimplification, but they're helpful categories for us to think of. You have the Pharisees. You guys have heard of them? They thought that God had allowed Roman rule because they, they hadn't really followed the law very strictly. They, 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 the people hadn't been holy enough. They needed to better adhere to Torah in order to see the Messiah come and for Israel to be liberated. So they applied more rules and more laws to people. They added burdens to people religiously. The second group you have is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they were a lot more pragmatic uh, they are like, okay, well, uh, Rome's here, and uh, I, I think we should just figure out how to work with them, 
How can we align ourselves with them uh, to gain position? I mean, we can still run the temple. We can still do some of the things that we're, that we're called to do. We just need to figure out how to make this work. It's not ideal, but let's just get along somehow. You have a third group called the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of people who saw the entire culture and the religious system as corrupted, and so they retreated entirely out into the desert. You can almost think of them kind of like Jewish monks. It's like everything, I'm just going, we're going off the grid. We're going out here, this whole thing's a mess, like we're going out, into, out, out to the desert. There's a fourth group, though. There's a fourth group uh, known as the Zealots. The Zealots had the stories of those mighty men of valor from the Old Testament in their minds. They, the, they, they remember Judas Maccabeus, the hammer. They, they have all of these stories where the, 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 the children of God were zealous for God's house and they took action. And that action was military action. They believed God would fight for them and put down the oppressors if they would just pick up a sword and fight. God was waiting for them. What are we waiting for? Let's go. Let's get to this. My hope today is that God might show us and challenge us as the new people of God if we have pictures we expect Jesus to fit into. My prayer is that none of us, including me, would stare right at him and not see him. I hope you don't want to, uh, like I said, throw me off of the uh, thing over here when we're, when, when, when we're done. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of things in this world. Passions, philosophies, politics, riches that are going to try to distort our view of Jesus and what we're called to in following him. And if we are not careful, we can be pulled off mission, off track, and in the ditch, living under a different agenda than that of the kingdom of God. What do you see when you see Jesus? What do you see in his words? Father, help us see. If you have a Bible, turn or find, with, find it with me, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 44. We're only going to read verses 16 through 30 together. I really want to encourage you this week, read the whole thing. Luke puts the whole thing together. You, you get that the, that the Gospels are, there's somebody writing them and assembling in the same way that I'm assembling a sermon that I hope makes sense, right? They're trying to pull together uh, uh, the, the, this narrative. And Luke pulls together some very specific stories that actually go and demonstrate what Jesus is about to talk about. So I want to encourage you to go read the full passage, uh, the full passage this week. We're going to pick up the story that, that where we're at in Luke um, as, as Jesus has come through the waters of baptism, spent days wandering in the desert. Nick talked about this last week. He was facing and overcoming temptation. Uh, and now he's returned to his neck of the woods. He's, uh, he's up in the Galilee region where he grew up, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins his ministry. Somewhere not long after that, we pick up in verse 16. Uh, I'm going to be reading from a kind of a hybrid translation. It's blended from theologian Dr. Kenneth Bailey in the NRSV. It's going to make maybe more sense as we go along why, 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 why I've done that. Okay. When he came to Nazareth. Okay, Pause. I'm going to do this. We're going to read, and I'm going to give you some commentary. Right off the bat, you need to know something about Nazareth. It was a settlement town. 
It was settled during the Maccabean Revolution as a way to expand the presence of God's people into a region of the country that had become known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a settlement town to extend Jewish culture into a place that, that, that had largely kind of been taken over in a sense. Galilee of the Gentiles. The synagogue here was filled with really good, upright Jews, likely aligned with the Pharisees and many aligned with the Zealots. The Jewish population in Galilee was known as a bit of a hotbed for the Zealot movement, actually. Years, years, years later, there was a revolution that kind of started there. Like there's, so there's, there's a lot of that happening in the water in, the, in, in Galilee. Okay, unpause. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. I like that. He went to church. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim to the prisoners freedom and to the blind recovery of sight, to send forth the oppressed in freedom, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. On pause. So sitting down is what a teacher would do in order to provide comment and commentary on the, on the verse that they just read. So everyone is waiting to hear what he's going to say, especially, especially because he was just very purposefully selected this messianic prophecy from Isaiah. This is a highly rich, political, religious, prophetic scroll that he has taken. It's really precious to the people of Israel. It's a prophecy that, by the way, he didn't finish reading. If you look at what Isaiah actually says, he stops short. You see the, the next line right after, right after um, the, the year of the Lord's favor is to proclaim, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus does not finish the prophetic line. The vengeance in that passage is on the enemies of God's people. Get that? The vengeance in that passage is on the enemies of God's people. So you have a whole room wondering why he stopped short of our favorite part. Especially because he didn't read that. So they're paused intently and skeptically waiting for what he's going to say. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wait, what? What? What in the world is that supposed to mean? Like, I, I don't see any action. I don't see how that is possible at all. Who in the world does Jesus think he is? And he goes on, and all were bearing witness about him and were marveling at the words of grace coming from his mouth. And they were saying, is this not the son of Joseph? Now, your English translations will not pick up on the historical tension that's in, that, that's in the room. What you'll read is a, is, a, is a translation in the Greek that makes it sound like people are like, oh, Jesus guy's awesome. That's actually, the, the Greek word that's used there could be, could be positive or negative. 
the room is paying attention to like, wait a second, huh? And why has he turned this passage of judgment into something about mercy and grace? Why is he not finishing what is expected of him? This boy, isn't this Joseph's kid? Doesn't he know what, what, what we think around here? Doesn't he understand that passage? They're starting to murmur, and it's not how great he is. And all of them were bearing witness about him and were marveling at the words of grace coming from his mouth. And they were saying, is this not the son of Joseph? He said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Jesus is feeling the room and he challenges them. (laughs) Comes right at them. That sounds kind of weird, right? If everyone was like, oh, Jesus, you're amazing. And then he's like, comes at them. He's not. He feels the tension of what's happening in the room and how they're misunderstanding his, his intention. It goes on and it says, And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, many Jewish widows in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, And there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon, a Gentile. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Gentile Syrian oppressor general. At that... When they heard this, in the synagogue, they were filled with rage. They got up and they drove him out of the town and they led him to the brow of the hill and on which their town was built so that they might have him hurled off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. He also just didn't match their anger. He said what he needed to say. He didn't, re- he didn't respond. He didn't raise his voice in the streets. He just moved through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. So what exactly was Jesus' agenda? What exactly was Jesus' agenda? Well, it's found in verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim to the prisoner's freedom, and to the blind recovery of sight, to send forth the oppressed in freedom, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The first thing that we see that is here in in Jesus' agenda is identity before activity. Identity before activity. Before Jesus tells us what he's going to do, he reminds himself and everyone else who he is. Isaiah is what he reads from and literally declares himself to be the prophesied Messiah in it. The son of the one uh, of whom the spirit has come to rest. The son of man, the son of God. Kings were anointed. He is telling the room, I'm it. He's the proper king. It is his identity that gives his activity authority. It is his identity that gives his activity authority authority. The word of God has formed his identity. Popular religious, political, or philosophical voices of his day were not the loudest voices in his head. 
we see that Jesus is laser-focused on living out the word, fulfilling prophecy, and his unique calling. Jesus reads from Isaiah, but Luke, adding a really specific, interesting detail, wants us to see Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel is a prophet that's sent to the children of Israel in exile, living under the oppression and direction of a foreign power. Israel had forgotten their purpose, fallen into idolatry, disgraced God's name in front of the other nations, and so Ezekiel was sent to them with a message of, for God's people to turn in repentance and live. I want to read to you Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and emphasize the specific word I want you to pay attention to that Luke highlights for us as well. And God said to me, Ezekiel, Son of man, who else was called son of the man often? Jesus. Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Luke emphasizes this detail that we may miss. And the scroll was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and speaks the word of the Lord to the house of Israel and rolls the scroll back up. Luke didn't have to say all that. Why is he mentioned scroll three different times? This is the prophetic fulfillment of what Ezekiel is even talking about here. This is the Son of Man coming to speak the words of God to the children of Israel. Jesus grew up like you and me, and he grew up eating the scroll, eating the word of God, reading it, studying it, letting it form his mind and his imagination. Brothers and sisters, we have got to do the same thing. Our identity cannot be formed by Netflix, a political party, latest pop culture, Whatever, those things, I'm not saying anything wrong with those things, but those cannot be the main formational things in our lives. The word of God must be identity before activity. Before we know how to move out and do anything, who are you? Who are you? Whose are you? Jesus knew it. He knew who he was. And so we see in his agenda, is, it's identity before activity. But there are activities there are specific activities. And the structure of this speech helps us to see pretty clearly that Isaiah is a good Hebrew prophet, right? So he's quoting from Isaiah. Um, he's, he's, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And, and Isaiah, as a good Hebrew prophet, the way that the Hebrews would structure their writings is always really, really fascinating. Um, you, you would have similar kind of parallel activities. You can go ahead and click to the, to the chart that's got the... There you go. It's a little hard to read, but there's, there's a structure to it. And the structure is where there's parallelism, where they repeat an idea and they mirror it to kind of reinforce it. And at the center, there's a unique and distinct idea that's kind of like the key, key point or the key idea that unlocks a lot of things. So you have in what Jesus is saying, this kind of A, to preach good news to the poor, A at the bottom, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Same kind of idea. B, he sent me to proclaim the prisoner's freedom. B, to send forth the oppressed in freedom. And what happens in the middle? And the blind, recovery of sight. That's an important thing. It's a really important thing that's right there in the middle of what, of what he's called to do. 
Our picture and expectation of the gospel will color what we see here, what we see with what Jesus is saying. Do we see a duck or a rabbit? And what we'll see uh, will change, and how we see this, by the way, will change what we think Jesus is saying and what it calls of us. You see, there's proclamation, there's justice, there's sight, there's justice, and there's proclamation. Jesus is called to preach good news to the poor. If your view of the gospel is that Jesus came to break the power of economic, social, and political chains, primarily, then you will see Jesus as the great social liberator, the leveler of the playing field, here and now, and the one who always sides with the economic poor. However, this text, this text historically won't support that view. Jesus is called to preach good news to the poor. The word poor here is used 15 times in the book of Isaiah, 15 times. Of those 15 times, three of them are related directly to those who are economically destitute. The other 12 times, it speaks of people who are humble and needy for God's help. So it's not devoid of actual poverty but the emphasis is actually not just socioeconomic. There is a heart condition that is is what the scripture leans more heavily upon. Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the man to whom I will look, he that is poor and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jesus did not come with a sole focus to change economic and social power dynamics. That was not his primary mission. That will get worked out, but that was not his primary mission. If, on the other hand, your view of the gospel and what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your personal sins, pardoned you from the wrongs held against you, setting you free from a guilty conscience, and then uh, you're going to see Jesus as kind of just a personal spiritual savior. The sacrificial lamb that made a way for for you to get to heaven. This passage won't let you stop there. That's not untrue, just like the other one was not untrue. He cares about economic injustice, but it won't let you stop there. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, but he mashes up two separate texts. If you actually go back and read Isaiah 61, you'll see that Jesus kind of does a little self-editing. He brings in something from Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, and, and where the idea of to send forth the oppressed in freedom, he actually gets that from a different passage. Here's what that passage says. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the, bond, the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to send forth the oppressed in freedom? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? Jesus did not just come preaching a message that requires no physical and practical action from us to undo the effects of sin and the fall. He wants us to take action. But without the third item in this list of this agenda, without the third item in this list, we would be lost. At the center of Jesus' inaugural address is a compassionate action. The recovery of sight to the blind. Right in the middle, right in the middle, compassion. Over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus moved with compassion. 
pastor and author, Dane Ortland, about the, wrote this about the compassion and heart of Jesus, and he had this to say. When we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what stands out most strongly, yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and longings. Yes, he is the one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness. Yes, he is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of his day. But the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Jesus comes to us who are spiritually, metaphorically, and even physically blind, and he says, it's not okay with me that you're blind. I'm going to do something about it. In verse 40 of Luke, when you read it this week, you'll see this. There was a little verse that just struck me. Luke, in, in verse 40 of, of, of chapter 4, talks about Jesus, says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and listen, he laid his hands on every one, every one of them, and he healed them. Do you know that Jesus has time for you, that he cares about you, that he is willing and here this morning to meet you. He's not in a rush. He's got time. Compassion means to suffer with. To have compassion means to empathize with someone who is suffering and to feel moved in your guts to do something about it. To reduce the suffering by taking some action. Jesus was anointed as the king, but he would be the suffering servant king, not the king who came in triumph. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He didn't come to set every little detail politically, economically, and socially right. He came to suffer with, to plant the seeds that would change everything, and one day it all will be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Isaiah talks about this suffering servant in a different passage, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. I think we just read that. I wanted to throw him off a cliff. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Will we accept a suffering Messiah whose kingdom demands a lifestyle of loving our enemies, forgiving transgressors, and being willing to be rejected as peacemakers, misunderstood by people on different sides of the political aisle or whatever topic you want to talk about? Or do we, like 
Those in the synagogue of Nazareth have our own ideas about what Jesus should do and ask of us. Band, you guys can come back up. When I think about someone who embodies this threefold agenda, as I was just being confronted with this, this, this last couple of weeks, studying this, and I was, I was just I was reminded of a, of, of a dear friend of mine. Uh, Yusuf has actually been here before, but his wife, Myrna. Yusuf and Myrna Batar, you don't, you don't know them. Um, they're there on the, uh, on the left, but they, uh, they're, they're dear to me. They were actually in the youth group that I was a pastor of about 16, 17 years ago. And um, they, uh, Myrna, from the time that she was a teenager, I remember her mom telling me stories of, as a teenager, how she would go to abortion clinics and hand out water to, 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 to the girls outside. She got involved in different ministries, and she, was always, she always cared about the women. She didn't like the idea of abortion, but she cared about the women that, that were having them. That was years ago, some 20, 20 years, 16, 17 years. You fast forward to today, Myrna runs a really uh, thriving and growing ministry in Huntington Beach in Santa Ana uh, as an offshoot of Young Life. And it's called Orange County, uh, Orange County Young Lives. Their stated purpose is this. Young Lives is focused on building relationships with teen moms and dads by entering their world, modeling unconditional love, and encouraging them to become the men and women and fathers and mothers God created them to be. They come alongside of these girls with practical support. They, they rally community and mentorship. They organize fun events and restorative things like prom for these girls that have lost it. They have encouraged these young girls to, to, to keep their babies. They've seen, they've seen these girls graduate. They've seen a few couples actually go on, get married, and there's a few that have come back and are in a part of the ministry. They are, they're, they're, they're doing something that it's like, man, when I think about the way the kingdom works, I think often I think about Myrna and, and Yusuf. Myrna didn't grandstand. She didn't build a platform. She didn't necessarily rail against an issue. She quietly and she compassionately took action. The sure, quiet work of the kingdom of God. Jesus said it like this. Again, he said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ever speak up on issues or become involved in politics. Some of you might be called to that. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote with our conscience and be good citizens and wrestle through what that actually looks like and what that means. That we shouldn't join in peaceful marches. I'm not saying any of those things. There is a host of things that are good and right and good for us to do and other people won't agree with us when we do them. What I am saying and what I am asking is what is our motivation for doing these things? Are we grounded first in our identity and then being, being led by the Spirit into our activity? Do we know what we're called to? Do we join Jesus in his mission? Do we understand what your specific mission is? And will you stay on target?
there's lots of voices, lots of siren songs that want to pull you off. Will you stay on mission for what God has for you? That it may be said of you and for me someday. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church. Thank you.